Word nerd. Wordsmith. Wordy. Wordless. Oxford Dictionary says a word is a single, distinct, meaningful element of speech or writing, used with others or sometimes alone. We say each one matters. No extra words is literature, minimalist style. And we're getting you right to the story. Lost at Sea by Drew Lovell Terry liked the seaside. It reminded him of when he was a kid. From squandering coins on crooked grab machines to running in and swiftly out of the chilly sea to eating unevenly seasoned chips from a polystyrene cone. It may not have been everybody's idea of heaven, but it was his. The absolute highlight of every single trip to the seaside as a kid was his dad's visit to the ice cream van. For Terry, these were all traditions that he'd done with his own children, and today's trip to the seaside had been no different. He was now 34, as was his wife, Claire. They had two children, Millie 8 and Michael 6, and they'd arrived at the seaside at 11 a.m. It had taken Terry 93 minutes exactly to drive down, but it was totally worth it. The happy young family had spent their time squandering coins on the crooked grab machines, running into the chilly sea, and eating unevenly seasoned chips from polystyrene cones. Some things never change, he thought. But it was now time for his favorite moment of the seaside trip, which was to buy the whole family ice creams. He began his trek towards the shabby-looking ice cream van, which was past the beach and parked up on the other side of the road. He weaved his way through a mass of other families who, like his, had made the most of the sunny weather by heading to the seaside. He had left his family near the sea. They were easy to spot amidst all the busy beach chaos, as they were to the left of the blue and white striped windbreaker. Terry smiled as he recited out loud his family's orders. One vanilla flavored 99 with a flake in it for Claire. That was easy to remember because the only ice cream Claire ever ate was vanilla. One lemonade flavored ice pole for Millie. This was also unforgettable as Millie couldn't eat ice cream due to her dairy allergy. And one chocolate ice cream cone for Michael. Who could forget Michael's choice? Everybody who knew Michael knew that Michael's favorite thing in the whole world was chocolate. As Terry smiled at the selections of his family and why they had made them, a beach ball found its way to Terry's bare feet. He looked around the tangle of noisy families to see who it might belong to, and soon enough a toddler shortly followed after it. The boy must have been no older than two years of age. He had blonde hair, blue eyes, a blue and white stripy t-shirt, and navy shorts. "'Is this your ball, young man?' Terry asked with a smile on his face. The young boy nodded and picked the ball up. He then ran back to his family, who gave a wave and a roll of the eyes to Terry as if to say their thanks. He reached the ice cream van and repeated his family's order. "'A vanilla 99 with a flake in it for my wife, a lemonade ice pull for my daughter, and a chocolate ice cream cone for my son, please.' "'And what about you, sir? Anything for yourself?' Terry had been so focused on his family's order, he'd almost forgotten his own. "'Oh, yes, just chalk ice for me, please.' Terry handed his money over and waited for the confectionery. Within minutes, he was on his way back to his family. He could feel the hot sand burning the soles of his feet. He simply couldn't wait to get back to Claire, Millie, and Michael to give his feet a rest from the scorching grains. He passed the blue and white striped windbreaker, being careful not to drop any of the treats. They were exactly where he had left them, all three waiting patiently for his return. "'Hey, guys, got the order here,' Terry said enthusiastically as he sat down next to them. But there was no answer from his family. Instead, Claire, Millie, and Michael simply just stared at him. Claire put her arms around the children as if to protect them. "'Claire?' 
Terry laughed, unsure what to make of the trick they'd obviously planned for Daddy's return. Claire, come on, the ice cream's melting here, Terry said, his voice ever so slightly more serious. Pete, Claire shouted into the sea. Pete, come back. Suddenly, a tall, muscular man seemed to respond to Claire's calls and walked out from the sea. He had a swimming hat and goggles on. He began making his way towards Claire, Millie, and Michael, who had all slid up away from Terry's spot next to them in the sand. Claire, come on, this isn't funny anymore, Terry expressed his growing concerns. The man from the sea was vastly approaching. Come on, Millie, take your ice pole now, there's a good girl, demanded Terry, shoving the lemonade-flavored ice pole in Millie's direction. Millie began to sob. Pete, hurry up, Claire shouted at the man from the sea, who by now had started to jog towards them. Hang on, came over, guys, you're starting to freak me out, Terry yelled. Here, Michael, take your ice cream, son. His name is not Michael, my daughter's name is not Millie, and my name is not Claire. Now go away, you creep, before my husband beats the living daylight out of you, she warned with a tone that suggested she was far from joking. As the man with the swimming hat and goggles approached, Terry jumped up from the sand. What's going on here, then, pal? The swimmer said in a rather aggressive manner. Terry looked at his wife and kids, then looked at the swimmer. Answer me right now, pal. Why are you bothering my wife and kids? Terry opened his mouth to answer, but he didn't quite know what to say. Just as the swimmer was leaning in, in an intimidating way, Terry heard his name being called from across the beach. Terry? Terry, we're over here. Terry looked to where the voice was coming from. It was deriving from the same family that the little blonde boy in the beach ball had been sat. Terry gulped a big gulp and looked back at the people he'd been bothering. He was 100% sure that that was his wife and kids, who he knew so well. I'm sorry, I got confused, I guess. Terry then slowly made his way over to the family that beckoned him, with the vanilla ice cream, the chocolate ice cream, the lemon-flavored ice pole, and the chalk ice. I suppose this is my family, he whispered to himself as he made his way over. Gator Bait by Paul Russo It's late July. Heat hangs low over the bayou like thick wool. The skeeters buzzing in my ears. The gator sidewinding and splashing through the briny sidewaters. I see him walking up the red clay road in bib overalls and a sweat-stained t-shirt. His skin a tint of wind and sun, humidity dripping from his furrowed brow. His face is feral and rough-hewn, troubling in its uncertainty. A long barrel hunting rifle fills his left hand. He stops as he passes. Our eyes meet and slide apart. There's an uneasiness. He rubs his whiskered chin, snuffs some snot into his mouth, swishes it around, spits it out, and in a cigarette-ripened voice says, Gators sure are riled up. They sure are. It's egg-laying time, that's why. They get mean and hungry. They sure do. He pauses and swats a mosquito. Ever seen a gator take an animal or a man down? No, can't say as I have. It ain't purdy, he says. He snuffs some more snot, pinches his eyes narrow and asks, You alone? I lie. I got me some friends waiting in the car about a half mile back. Of course you do. His lips curl into a nine-tooth grin. 
He sets the rifle on his left shoulder, then pulls a shotgun shell from his pocket. He rolls the shell around and around in his right hand. What's the moon going to be tonight? I'm thinking of going gator hunting. But I need me... He stops mid-sentence and eyes me from top to bottom. He turns and looks behind him. He is nervous, distant, occupied, his hands fidgety. Hello there, welcome to No Extra Words, the Flash Fiction Podcast. My name is Chris Baker Dirsch, I'm your producer and editor. So those are the kinds of people we are talking about today. Those people you just don't want to get too comfy with. All of today's stories put you in kind of an uncomfortable place, and it's always interesting to play with how many of those stories I want to bring to you, because as with any literary journal or story collection or any assemblance of short fiction, a lot of it comes down to personal taste. I will freely admit that I'm a one-woman band and I bring to you stories that I like. Seems simple enough. But every now and then I have a story that like is the wrong word for, but that I think does really creative things with how it presents itself. And sometimes stories are meant to make you feel funny. Because life does that, and they're meant to replicate that feeling. We started with two. The first is bewilderment. You don't really know at the end of that story how how it ends, what is really going on, what has really caused this level of confusion. It's playing with the line of reality versus fantasy. Is the guy just confused? Is he on some kind of alternative plane? And then we get into the just really plain uncomfortable. The situation where you are literally alone and at the mercy of a stranger you don't want to be at the mercy with. It's all about people we don't like, people we aren't comfortable with, that feeling that people give you sometimes. But it's so important. It's that trust your instincts kind of story. And the one that's coming next is one of those that's a challenge for me to bring to you because it is rough. I'm going to warn you before going in, if you are with sensitive people or if you are a sensitive person yourself you may want to skip the story that's coming up because it does get a little bit on the graphic side Um, there's more than just some language to it there's a reason I marked this episode as explicit so just be aware of that but I think it's a really important piece of fiction because it again it takes you to that place of just this weird uncomfortableness where you just need to be and live sometimes and that's bodily fluids by Ron Ricky and it's coming up. So that's today's episode. It's meant to be unsettling a little bit and I think it's important to let literature do that to us sometimes. So I'm not going to say too much more about the story today except that that is the feeling and that is the vibe that we're going for. I'm going to try something new. Uh regular listeners know that we've been doing segments and today the dun 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 writing spaces segment is coming back. But I want you to live with these stories first. So I'm going to come back after the third story of the episode. And we're going to close with my introducing and talking to you about writing spaces. Because I don't want to muddle those two things together in this particular episode. So I'm going to turn things over to this story by Ron Ricky and come back to you after.
Bodily Fluids by Ron Rickey I used to work for a German who talked like a Nazi. He wasn't a Nazi. Of course he wasn't a Nazi. He just talked like a Nazi, which is a problem, except he was our boss. So we had to pretend it was normal to have that sort of inflection. And I know that not all Germans talk like Nazis. I'm saying he talked like he was from Berlin in the 1940s, with the problem being that he was in Beijing in the 2000s. This was after 9-11, of course. And I'm a poor white, and you can't say what I'm about to say right now, but the whites that I know who graduated from my college, who have parents who are, like, minors and teachers, they don't have jobs. The few whites I know who graduated from my college who have parents who are doctors and lawyers and plumbers and shit like that, they have two jobs. And I hate any two jobs. Save at least one job for us. But they do easy jobs. Given jobs. They work at, like, NYC ad agencies and LA agencies for their parents and for their parents' ad agencies and their parents' parents' hand-me-down law firms that are firmly carved out of the dark history of America. They're on social media during work hours because social media is their work, sort of. Because their work isn't work, it's overseeing people who work. I went to China for an advertising job. Except it wasn't normal advertising. When I got there, I found out it was the worst advertising you could imagine. We did advertising for vodka companies and tampon companies and cigar companies. We actually got a full gig writing slogans for a bong company, but we couldn't just do any slogan. They wanted to ensure we had double entendre and that we hit their target audience, which are people who apparently love double entendre. And you know what? I don't even want to tell you about my job. It wasn't a job. It was a blow job. It was a con job. It was a wreck job. A snow job. I don't know. Some word and then job. A Halloween job. Worse. Much worse. But I want to tell you about the boss. He was pansexual. He was so sexual that he would have sex with a pan. The rumor was that he made love to everything in his kitchen, that his spatulas were covered in lipstick, that his knives were pregnant. I went to his house for the company Christmas party, but when I got there, I found that I was the only one there. Now, I'm not homophobic. I'm just phobic. People scare me. I'm heterophobic. I'm snoring phobic. I'm zombie phobic. I'm even scared of phobias. I just simply don't like people, which makes me perfect for advertising, especially grunt-level advertising. Anyway, the tension I felt was that the boss was going to kill me. And I'm not joking. I had these huge fears of being lumped into a pile of corpses in the back of his wine rack. And he had a wine rack. He had a sock rack and a pen rack and everything organized like, well, a Nazi, to be honest with you. And he gave me a drink and insisted I drink it. And then he pulled out a scrapbook and I was so afraid he was going to propose to me. And he said, do you want your life to change? And I said, no, because that's the appropriate response. No one wants their life to change. Or if they do, they want minimal change, because quick change is always horrific. I don't know of anyone who has won the lottery. I've known people who got into a car accident and lost their leg in seconds, in ice seconds. My next door neighbor did that. And I don't mean literally next door, but metaphorically next door. The metaphor of next door, which means just some guy in my town who doesn't have a leg anymore. And who I hope does not hear this because I'm not being reverent and like kind. Because I'm not kind. I've had way too many hardcore minimum wage jobs to be kind. Even the advertising job, when you consider China's taxes, was minimal wage. It was minibar wage. No, that would be expensive. It was German shepherd wage. The type of wage a dog would get. A German dog. Where was I? A scrapbook. He opens it up. I'm ready to see the horrors of his childhood. Never let a boss tell you about their childhood. It's always a sob story. It's a story with snot coming out of its nose and eyes like a drug addict. Boss stories are hell. And it's hard to care about a boss. 
the cool boss is such a rarity. The suck boss is so much the norm. He opened the book and showed me a picture of a Chinese man on a motorcycle. Except it wasn't a motorcycle, but some kind of motor scooter thing. And he wasn't a man. Not anymore. He was a blood mess. A good Friday scene that shows nothing good. Pure blood in black and white. His head was twisted in the wrong direction, and I looked up and the boss's eyes were sad. I expected some sort of hysterical pleasure, but he looked like a puppy. An orphan puppy. A concerned orphan puppy. A diabetic concerned orphan puppy. I don't know. He looked human. He started telling me he'd gotten copies of the Tiananmen Square Massacre and gave me details, and he flipped through page after page after page, and there were tanks and empty streets and just body, 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 as if they were sleeping, but sleeping wrong, sleeping in hell, crushed by tank, burned and stacked. And it ended with Tank Man, with the unknown protester, the famous photo, the infamous photo, the grand scrapbook finale. June 1989, he said. He tapped the page. I saw the famous man in the famous white shirt and famous black pants before the famous tanks, his famous back to me. And my boss said, you're fired. My head was full of bodies, and I couldn't comprehend. And he told me he knew I was quitting, when I didn't know I was quitting. But I had mentioned to the sole other American in the company that I was thinking of quitting. And the boss told me he does this with those who are leaving the company, who he trusts, and his eyes were Nazi and puppy combined, Trump and hippie combined. And he said that I would go back to the States, where this stuff isn't banned on the internet, where you can write about the 38th Army opening fire on Chang'an Avenue protesters, and the first killed, Song Xiaoming. And he said the name again, Song Xiaoming, and spelled the name, and wrote it down, and handed it to me, and motioned for me to put it in my pocket. And he finished his wine, and closed the book, and said to continue my life, quote, unquote. Continue your life, he said. And he walked away, scrapbook in hand. And he didn't come back. I left the house quietly and went on the street and wondered if I was being watched. I remember the buzz of the streetlights. So as promised, we are making that transition back away from the uncomfortable place the stories left us today. I think part of me could not leave you guys in that place because I don't know about you, but I need my podcasts to pull me away from my life sometimes. And when they get too deep and heavy for me, I love. All right. I should start at the beginning here, guys. One of the announcements I was going to make today anyway is that we are finishing up the month of March, which means we are finishing the promotion hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D, which is a promotion put out by podcasters and podcast companies to encourage you, the listeners, to share your favorite podcast with a friend. That can be no extra words, or it can be This American Life, or it can be Serial, or whatever it is that you like to listen to. Share it with a friend, and on social media, use that hashtag tripod, because four out of five Americans don't regularly listen to podcasts, and the best way to get them to know how cool this stuff is is for you who do listen to tell them. That's the promotion. So I'll do my little tripod by telling you that one of the podcasts that I love is Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. 
they're almost more like audiobooks. Dan Carlin is this brilliant guy who researches historical topics and puts out these episodes that are three to six hours long. His World War One series is epic, and I love it. But he, I was listening to Dan Carlin a couple weeks ago, and I just had to turn it off. I, I can't do this. I can't sink this far into deep, scary, gory history right now because I need podcasts to pull me out of it. And so I put on another show that I really like for completely different reasons. My buddies, the History Chicks, who they build themselves a historical girl talk, which is they take a woman from history and these two hosts go back and forth and they banter and they tell her story because I was very much in a history chicks place and not a hardcore history place at that moment. I'll come back to Dan Carlin, but that's what I needed my podcasts to do for me at that moment. So that's the promotion tripod. I just did it for you right there. So that's what we're doing through the end of March or even beyond. Anyway, I needed you to feel the visceral feelings of bodily fluids, but I somehow couldn't bring myself to leave you there. So I am back with a couple of announcements, and then we're going to end with some super fun writing spaces today. The first announcement was Tripod, as we did that already. The second announcement is Writing Spaces this week has a sponsor. Thank you so much to former No Extra Words contributor Matt Kiefer and his blog, Ravings of a Mad Music Man, for sponsoring this week's edition of Writing Spaces. Matt is at mattkiefer.blogspot.com. Go visit him over there to hear his essay on his writing space. Or you can click the link right there in your show notes. Whatever you're listening to should have a link that says info or more details, and there'll be a link right there to Matt. So thank you, Matt, for being part of the show this week. I love these two writing spaces that are coming your way because they break the rules of where you're supposed to write. What a writing space is supposed to look like, what an office is supposed to look like, and I could seriously relate to both of them. Jen McConnell's going to kick us off, and you literally can hear the washing machine going on in the background, and I'm really surprised you don't hear the washing machine more often when you're listening to this podcast, because it is next door in the room I'm working in right now. Totally relate to that. And then it was so delightful to hear Marina Francis Mularz's voice, um, because she's an early contributor to the show. I had to actually look it up. She was our 34th contributor back on episode 20. If you haven't heard her story, what we talk about when we talk about Homer... Seriously, go right back and listen to it. That's episode 20 in our Wayback Machine. It's fabulous. So both of these ladies are here today to tell you about their writing space. And it seemed like a good way to do our first ending to this series. We are not done with writing spaces. It is coming back. But we are transitioning into April, which is National Poetry Month. And we're going to do some other fun things on episodes coming up in April. So writing spaces is coming back in May. And this seemed like a good way to close off the ones that we've done thus far. It's really, it's been a segment that I have totally enjoyed bringing you, but have some other cool segments that are coming your way as well. You have an opening day of baseball season special episode. She'll be with you in a couple of days, and then we will be back April 14th for more short fiction and National Poetry Month. In the meantime, please enjoy hearing Jen McConnell and Marina Francis Mullars talk about their writing spaces, and I will see you next time on No Extra Words. thinking about the space where I write. I don't really have just one space. Right now I'm in my office at home, which is really the end part of writing for me. You can hear the washing machine kind of through the the walls, the dogs barking to get in, my husband kissing my daughter goodnight. 
it's late at night right now, and I'm kind of doing the last part of writing, which is the business part of it, tracking my submissions, sending out more stories or poems, making edits to a screenplay. I can't really write from scratch at home, though. It's not very inspiring here. It's, it's too domestic for me. I need to be out in the world. A coffee shop, or I do a lot of writing when I'm traveling or on vacation or anywhere out of my normal routine. So you always have to have a notebook with you to capture those moments. When I have kind of a first draft or an idea down in my notebook from a public place, I'll come home and then I'll edit. And I can do that around the dogs or my daughter. I can sit on the couch with the dog on either side and maybe watch a baseball game. And I can get it into a computer. That doesn't need my full concentration. But then when I go to rewrite or edit the second draft, that's what I need. I print it out, again, from my office, and then I take that back out into the world, usually a coffee shop or anywhere where I can be for a few hours with noise around me but no one needing my attention. And then when I bring it back to my office, I'll make some more edits, print it out, that if it's really at the last part and I need to truly proofread and truly get into it, I'll get myself into the back room, my bedroom, where it's quiet and nobody's going to disturb me, and I'll really work on it there. But really, to me, the writing process happens out in the world and inside my office. That's the business part of it, and that's when I know it's ready to be released back out into the world. If you want to learn more about me, visit www.jenmcconnell.com. Here's the thing about living in a studio apartment. No thing is ever one thing. Just ask my nightstand, which also doubles as a dining room table and a drying rack for my clothes and my dishes. That's how my kitchen turned office turned writing nook was born on a makeshift tile counter almost a year ago now when I packed up and landed my first real deal grown-up job in Los Angeles. Of course, everything came with me on that initial trip. All of the blazers and beaded curtains someone once told me exuded real-deal, refined, girl-turned-womanhood. And then all of it quite quickly disappeared when I settled into my 200-square-foot apartment, exclusively obtained to start my super-real-deal grown-up life. At a certain point, in fact, there was almost nothing left of my initial stash. A printer... A bag of iceberg lettuce, maybe. White walls and a weird, elevated femininity identity crisis mixed with a mild case of homesick, be brave, and focus on the task of growing up. In hindsight, I think I really struggled with bridging who I was and who I was supposed to be. All of these things in one small space. Until, after a particularly dumb day at the DMV, I realized something that nobody ever really tells you. The only thing dumber than being a stoic adult is feeling like you have to look like a stoic adult. 
With that, I allowed myself a break from the bores of sterile maturity. I started my own kitchen corkboard collection of puffy stickers and Lisa Frank stationery, which then inspired a few candy dishes and seafoam accent bar stools. And as I started drifting right over there night after night in that corner, finding myself so easily slipping into new pages and chapters I thought I'd have to abandon, it was abundantly clear. I found everything I needed in that nook of unabashedly bright life. Small but mighty, and wedged in between an oven and a wall I share with Pier 1 Imports, my space and body is a place of play, even when I don't feel like I ought to play. It's littered with fanciful doodles, a novelty glassware, and yes, a MacBook charger cord that somehow constantly gets tangled up in the legs of my seat, a true trademark of any writer's space, I might add. Of course, my space itself does something to the rest of the room, and to me, too. It makes us both feel young. It makes us start from square one each and every time there is writing to be done, and it allows me to detach from any kind of ego of adulthood that tries to creep in and tell anyone, really, what they ought to be doing by now, artistically, personally, professionally, etc. It's true, my space is a whole host of things, but in that I too am invited to indulge in the fun of flexibility. No thing is ever one thing, it seems. Just ask my bathtub, which doubles as a, well, you get the picture. Thanks for listening to the No Extra Words podcast. For more information on today's stories and contributors, or to learn how to submit your own work, please visit us at noextrawords.wordpress.com. The best support you can give the show is to recommend us to your family and friends. See you next time.